right. Go ahead and grab a seat. And if you would do me a favor, now that a lot of the kids have gone across the street and the big kids get to hang out, if you would move in, we have some people who are looking for seats. Good morning up there on the top. How you guys doing? You doing all right? You awake? Excellent. All right. We definitely have some seats down here in the front because despite the fact that it's Easter, we have all been into that, that idea that the front of the bus sucks is still there and we just can't break out of that. So if you want, come on down here to the spitting section. And if you are visiting us today, my name is Eric. I'm the lead pastor here and I'm so glad that you've come to join us on Easter Sunday. You know, and it, it's ironic that as... as um, Ken just pointed out that today, Easter happens to fall on April Fool's Day. Because it's, it's the, the one day of the year where we intentionally are doubtful of any claims that seem in any way extraordinary because we don't want to be made to be a fool, right? And yet at the same time, ironically, it's the one day of the year that we celebrate the single most extraordinary moment in history. When a carpenter from Galilee turned upstart rabbi who was killed because he became a danger to the status quo, not only was killed, but he rose from the grave, declaring definitively once and for all that he was who he was, who he claimed to be, and he did what he claimed to be able to do, namely to take our sins upon him so that we could have eternal life, that we could be reconciled to the Father. And that seems crazy. And it would, it would make sense for us to be doubtful of it. And in fact, even in Jesus' day, even as the tomb stood empty, even as some of the disciples started saying, we've seen Jesus in the flesh, he's alive, we've talked to him, there were other disciples, there were other people who said, I don't believe it. That is just too extraordinary and I don't want to be made a fool. And one of those disciples there's, there's many stories that we could look at of doubt, even on that first Easter morning, but probably the most famous one is about a guy named Thomas. And so it seems fitting that we talk about Thomas's doubt on a day when we normally doubt anything that seems even remotely extraordinary because we don't want to be made to be a fool. And the truth is that on that day, as he was hearing the good news that Jesus is alive, he was like, it seemed a little bit too much like an April Fool's joke. And so, rather than reading that story to you this morning, what I want is for us to experience that story. And so I'm going to invite my friend Glenn to, to give a dramatic reading of what it might have been like for Thomas on that first Easter morning. The streets of Jerusalem seemed cold and inhospitable as Thomas walked back towards the upper room. His arms were full of provisions to feed everyone who was hiding there. As he walked through the city, the sun was hidden behind a shroud of gray clouds, and it made the whole city feel gloomy. Or maybe that was just him. It was the third day since his rabbi's cold, lifeless body was placed in some rich man's tomb in an empty vessel that had once contained the hopes of so many, including his own. But those hopes had been spilled out into the dirt outside Jerusalem and trampled upon by snaring Jewish leaders who should have recognized Jesus as their long-awaited Messiah. But they hadn't. 
Those same religious leaders were still out there looking for the followers of Jesus who had the audacity to hope he was more than just a carpenter turned upstart rabbi. Thomas knew they were looking for him and the rest of the disciples. That's why none of Jesus' followers had dared to venture out before this, but someone needed to get supplies. And so Thomas volunteered. He'd taken a circuitous path back to their hideout, praying that he wasn't recognized along the way. But in the busy streets of Jerusalem on this first day of the Sabbath, nobody paid him the slightest bit of attention. He was just one more melancholy face in the crowd. As he moved, Thomas glanced behind him to make sure he hadn't been followed. And then he quickly climbed the stone staircase that led up to the upper room. This was the same room where he'd last spoken with Jesus as they shared one final meal together. Had it really been only four days? Gosh, it felt like an eternity. Well, Thomas's mood darkened as he quietly knocked on the door in the secret rhythm they'd agreed upon. When he finished knocking, the door was suddenly thrown wide open, recklessly wide in Thomas's opinion. He hurried inside so that it could be bolted tightly against prying eyes and whispering tongues. And as he began to set the provisions down, he noted that the room was brightly lit for the first time since Jesus' arrest. He was about to comment on this when he glanced up and noticed every eye in the room was turned towards him. Well, that was to be expected, I guess. I mean, he just ventured out of the city to get supplies. But... What wasn't expected was the way in which everyone was looking at him. Gone was the dejection he'd seen on their faces no more than an hour before. And their glum expressions, they were, they were turned into something like glee. What was he missing here? Thomas was about to ask what was going on when one of the disciples blurted out, He's alive, Thomas! And Thomas just sat there and stared at this grinning man trying to make sense of what he'd just heard. What? Who's alive? Jesus, he's alive. He was just here eating with us. You just missed him. Well, a spark of hope was kindled in Thomas's heart for just a moment. Then his rational mind got its act together and doused it with a bucket of cold logic. Jesus had bled out on a cross. He'd seen his lifeless body with his own eyes. No, this had to be some sort of prank, a very inappropriate prank in Thomas's opinion. The other disciples saw the look of doubt on his face and began to voice their support for this outlandish claim. No, seriously, he's alive. We've seen him. He was just here. He ate with us. It was really him, Thomas. He's alive. Well, Thomas watched their faces for some sign that they were pulling his leg. And the whole while, this internal war was raging in his head, between his head and his heart. In his head, he knew it couldn't possibly be true. But his heart held on to their words like a drowning man grasping a piece of wood. He longed for it to be true, longed to celebrate with them. But he feared opening himself up to this perilous hope because if he discovered it wasn't true, his heart could not break again. He wasn't going to let that happen. 
And so when Thomas finally regained his ability to string words together coherently, he said the only thing that made sense to him at the time. You guys have just seen Jesus? Well, until I see him with my own eyes and touch his wounds myself, I just can't believe what you're telling me. pick up that story in a little bit. But just for a moment, I want you to imagine yourself standing in Thomas's sandals. How would you have responded if you hear something that seems so completely contrary to how you know life works? Would you have joined with the disciples in celebrating or would you like him, pushed back and said, no, that can't be true. I want to see it for myself. Because Thomas wasn't asking for anything more than what the disciples had already seen themselves. He was simply asking to see Jesus himself. And the truth of the matter is, if I had been standing in his shoes, I, for one, would have balked at their claims. I would have wanted to see Jesus myself. And this is completely in keeping with Thomas's character. He's the kind of person that says what he thinks when he thinks that you never have to question where Thomas is coming from. Just about seven or eight days before this, as he and and Jesus and the rest of the disciples are gathered in Galilee, and Jesus says, hey guys, we're going to go back to Jerusalem. I've got some things I need to do there. The disciples all knew that that was trouble, that he was walking into the lion's den, because there were Pharisees, there were the rulers of the Jewish people who were gunning for him. And yet none of them spoke out. Only Thomas spoke up, and when he did, it wasn't to say, Jesus, that's a bad idea. Instead, it was to turn to the rest of the disciples and go, hey guys, let's go with them so that we can die alongside of them. That doesn't sound like the words of a coward. And then, just a few days before, the last time that he'd been in that upper room with Jesus, sharing a meal, they didn't realize it was going to be the last meal that they'd shared with Jesus. But as they sat around that table and Jesus was talking about what was going to happen, as he was warning them that this was coming, and he said, listen, guys, I am going to go away for a time, but don't worry. You will know where to find me. You'll know the way to me. Thomas goes, ah, no, we won't. We don't know where you're going, so how on earth will we know the way to you? You never have to question what Thomas is thinking. He may not always understand what's going on, He may not always get nuance, but at least he's honest. And on this day, this first Easter, he is being honest. I want to believe, but until I see him with my own eyes, until I get to touch the the wounds of his nails so that I know it's just not a figment of my imagination, I simply cannot let my heart go there. And I would have been right there in his sandals with him, saying the same thing. 
By the way, he wasn't the only one who voiced doubt. Just this morning, my boys and I were reading through the different uh, Easter morning statements, and almost every single disciple, at one point when they hear that the tomb is empty, they balk at it. They don't understand it. They don't believe it. Peter, he's got to go see it for himself. John, he's got to run to the tomb to see what's going on, but they don't understand it. Even when they see the empty tomb, they're like, what's going on? Then they come back and say, we don't understand. The The girls have said that they've seen Jesus, but we haven't seen him with our own eyes. We just saw the empty tomb and we don't understand it. And then some of those disciples decide that they're going to go for a walk to, uh, to Emmaus. And as they're doing it, they still don't understand what's happened. So Thomas isn't the only one that doubted. He's one of a long line of them that struggled with the truth that Jesus is alive. And yet, despite the fact that any one of us, if we had been with him that day, would have balked, we have given him a nickname. Doubting Thomas, right? We all know it. Now, I should mention that Jesus never gave him this nickname. This one didn't come from Jesus. This has come from Christ followers throughout the last couple of centuries where we've just said, yeah, that's a good way to remember who this guy was. We're not going to remember the fact that he was willing to go die with Jesus. We're not going to remember the fact that he was the kind of person that would just speak his mind. We're going to just remember this one moment where he says, I can't believe until I see him with my own eyes. And we've nicknamed him Doubting Thomas, and we don't think anything of it. What's the harm in it? It's a nickname. And yet, the insidiousness of that nickname is that it declares to us, it declares to ourselves that it is not okay to have questions about your faith. By naming him Doubting Thomas, we basically say to others as well as to ourselves in the church, you can never question anything you read in this book. You can never question anything you hear from a pulpit. Because if you do, it means you're doubting. And if you have doubt, or I'm sorry, if you've got questions, then you're doubting. And if you doubt, it means you lack faith. You're not a believer. The underlying I would suggest lie. The underlying statement of naming him Doubting Thomas is that we say that faith and questions cannot coexist. That if you have questions, you do not have faith. And this morning, I simply want to ask, is that true? Or can faith and our questions coexist? I would suggest that they can. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 17. And if you don't have a Bible, there are some in the seat backs in front of you. You're more than welcome. If you don't own a Bible, you're more than welcome to take the one in front of you. Our gift to you. We've got more. So we're going to Acts 17. As word about Jesus spread, as this good news that this carpenter turned rabbi turned sacrificial lamb had raised from the dead declaring that he truly was the son of God and that he had overcome sin so that we who had been trying to kind of earn our standing with God could actually be reconciled not through our own effort but through his sacrifice on the cross 
this news began to spread. And there were people who would take it from town to town. One of those guys who was very intentional about spreading the gospel beyond the boundaries of Israel, because this good news was not just for Jews and, and people that lived in Israel. This was good news for everybody. And so this guy's name was Paul. And Paul began to travel around. At first, Paul completely balked at the idea that Jesus had risen from the dead. In fact, when he heard some of the disciples start sharing this in the streets, he started to try to crack down. He went and got permission from the Pharisees to be their hitman to make sure that these guys did not continue to spread a false gospel. And he presided over the killing, the murder, of the first Christian martyr. He gave his approval to it because he thought he was protecting God from a false gospel. And then Jesus got a hold of his heart and radically transformed him. And Paul went from being one of the most outspoken opponents of the gospel to perhaps the single greatest proponent. And he began to spread the gospel and he would go from town to town. He would begin by going into the synagogue and preaching to Jews because it's the lowest hanging fruit. They had been long expecting their Messiah. And then when they would typically just kind of push him away and say, no, we don't believe that, he would then go out into the streets and begin to share the good news with the Gentiles. And they began to embrace it. Well, Paul goes to Thessalonica and they reject it. In fact, they reject it so vehemently that they get a mob together. They're going to arrest Paul, maybe even put him to death for spreading this false gospel. And so he leaves Thessalonica and he comes to the town of Berea. And that's where we're going to pick up this story. In Acts 17, verse 11, we read, the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. Okay, why? For they received the message, the gospel, with great eagerness. All right, so they embraced it as opposed to rejecting it, but let's keep reading. And they examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Interesting. They embraced the gospel as good news. Oh my goodness, Jesus is the Messiah. He rose from the dead, proving that he was who he claimed to be and that he did what he claimed to do. That's great. Let's see if it's true. And then they would begin to go through their scriptures. And for them, the scriptures were what we know as the Old Testament. Those are the only ones that are written down. And so they began to go through the Old Testament, reading about God's, what God said his Messiah would be like. We talked at length on Friday night about many of those. And if you're interested in what some of those verses, some of those passages in the Old Testament that pointed towards Jesus were, I would encourage you to listen to that on our website. But Paul began to share it. And they began to study to see if it held water. So apparently, it is possible to have faith and yet at the same time be able to look under the hood to see if, it, if there's any bearing to it, to see if it is true, to see if it lines up with Scripture. And I'm not just talking about one Scripture, not just a proof text. Does it line up with the whole of Scripture? Because our God doesn't change. He's the same yesterday and tomorrow as he is today. So it is, what I'm finding is that it is okay for us 
to have faith and yet at the same time have questions and to ask our questions just like Thomas did. Which then leads me to the, the very obvious question of why don't we ask our questions? Why don't we voice our doubts? Is it because we think that it's dishonoring to God to have questions? That his ego is so fragile that he can't handle us going, well, God, I, I don't understand this. This doesn't make sense. Why didn't you just come more out and say it? Why don't you just make Jesus apparent to everybody and nobody will doubt? I don't understand this whole Trinity thing. What's going on? You know, Why is it that we are not willing to voice our questions? Perhaps part of it is we think that God can't handle it, that his ego is just too fragile. Or maybe we think that by burying the questions, we can hide them from him so that he won't get his feelings hurt. But he's God. He already knows what we're thinking before those words are on our lips. So it's not like we can protect him from our thoughts. And I would suggest that we have a God who's big enough to handle our questions. We have a God who's strong enough to be able to handle our full range of emotions. And when we feel sorrow, he can handle our sorrow. And when we feel anger and discouragement and disappointment, he can handle those. And when we have questions about our faith, he can handle those things. So then why is it that we don't ask our questions? Why is it that we go through great lengths to bury our questions? I've been thinking a lot about that lately. I think at least part of the reason that we do this is because of our trust in God, or perhaps a better way to put it is our lack of trust in God, our lack of our trust in our faith, that if we were to put our questions into words and let them out there, if we were to actually look at what we claim to believe, that it would not actually stand up to scrutiny. And that's terrifying, because for many of us, we built our entire worldview off of the fact that we believe this is true, but we can't say why. And so instead, what do we do? Instead of asking our tough questions, we bury them under busyness. We, we do things for God. We just keep ourselves preoccupied. We keep the noise up so we don't have to hear the questions. We keep them buried down low. And instead, we found our faith, instead of on the bedrock of a living, breathing God that we have met and that we know, we, we base our faith off of our circumstances, which shift like the sands. And as so long as our circumstances are good, so long as our life is going well the way we planned it, we're okay. And we're good with God, because he's obviously good with us. But the moment something doesn't go the way we expect, when we get that prognosis from the doctor, yeah, it's cancer. Or when we get that letter from the IRS. Or when our relationship with our sweetie is not going so well. When our kids go a direction that we never wanted for them. When we get in an accident or we just go out and we find that we have a flat tire. Sometimes it's that easy for the foundation of our faith to be shaken. And when that happens, when somebody that we have been praying adamantly for dies, 
what happens to our faith then? If we founded it upon the shifting sands of our circumstances, I'll tell you what happens. It comes toppling down. And then at that point, we're left with a decision. Do we lean in, begin to clear out the rubble and begin to rebuild our faith? Or do we simply say it's too much work and there's too many questions? I'm out. And we walk. I'm not talking about this simply hypothetically, by the way. What I've just described to you is part of my own faith journey. I was raised in the church by, by, by Christian parents. I accepted Jesus into my heart at a very early age, although I had no idea what that meant. For me, my faith was a bunch of rules and, and beliefs about God that I had kind of accumulated from my parents, my pastors, and some of my peers who were a little, seemed a little more spiritual at the time, right? And I just began to collect these things over my life and say, oh yeah, that works. Okay, well you believe it, so I, I believe it too. And like a house of cards, I began to build my spiritual worldview. And it worked for me for a long, long time because my life was placid. And then September 2001 rolled around. And in the course of one month, there were three tremors that came from three unexpected directions that completely shook the foundation of my worldview. The first one happened on September 11th when those planes flew into the, the trade towers. And as they came tumbling down, our collective security as a nation was shaken. No longer could we rest in this idea that our borders were protected from terrorism, that we were somehow insulated and safe, and the only way we were going to ever be touched by terrorism is what we watched on the news. So our security was shaken. A week or two later, the pastor, the founding pastor at the church that I was attending, got up on stage and said, I've been having an extramarital affair. And I'm stepping down from my role so that I can work on my marriage with my wife and try to preserve it. And my faith community was rocked. And then the third one happened while I was taking a class at Vanguard, working on my master's degree. It was the first class I was taking there. And as I was sitting in that classroom, we were having this conversation about kind of the, the early church and how they began to make sense of Scripture and some of the conversations they were having. And one of the things that came out in that discussion that night was the idea that at this council, at one of the councils, they were trying to grapple with how to articulate that God is three in one. Because we obviously see Jesus at his baptism and the Father speaking over him and the Spirit coming down like a dove. We see God as this triune God, but there's only one God. How do we explain that? And they, they coined the term Trinity to describe that. And in that moment, I'm like, I didn't do this externally. I was cool, calm, and collected, right? But internally, I'm like, what? The word Trinity is not in the Bible? And in that moment, it was as if that professor took a sledgehammer to the house of cards that was my spiritual worldview. And that final tremor caused it to topple down like the Trade Center Towers. And you might go, why that one? I mean, isn't, you know, isn't 
terrorism or the, the shaking of your community wasn't that enough. But ultimately, the reason why that one was the straw that broke the camel's back was because it exposed one of the assumptions that I'd been carrying around for much of my life. And that assumption was that this book had just been lowered down from heaven in English, wrapped in faux leather that's going to end up peeling off of it after like a month, and with all of Jesus' words highlighted in red so that you know where he's talking and that's the part you pay attention to, right? These were my assumptions. And suddenly I realized I can't just... I mean, there were men that were involved in this? What? And that single doubt, that single question of that one card was enough to cause all of it to topple down. And I began to question all of it. Because if, if I had bought that one hook, line, and sinker, how many other false assumptions had I accepted? And suddenly, I found myself, much like our country at that time, a little bit overwhelmed, definitely a little bit numb, staring at my spiritual worldview that had crumbled like the Trade Center Towers at my feet. And in that moment, I was left with a decision. Do I lean in and begin to like pick up these questions that I've been ignoring for so long and begin to honestly ask them? Do I begin the slow, arduous task of rebuilding? Or do I simply say, that's too much. <laughs> the doubts are too great. I'm out. That was a really, really scary season of my life. And I chose to lean in. That's made all the difference. I chose to lean in, and it was not a very brief process. This was a long process. When you decide to make your faith your faith as opposed to your parents' faith or your pastor's faith or your friend's faith, that is a transition that might take a long time. And at times, it requires the tearing down of your faith so you can start from ground level again. It requires having the courage to be willing to ask some really hard questions without the certainty that you're going to find an answer for it. That's terrifying. But I chose to lean in. And slowly but surely I began to ask my questions and I would wrestle with them and sometimes I'd hold on to them for months at a time before I found an answer that satisfied. But here's what ended up happening through that process. As I spent tons of time praying, as I spent a ton of time, kind of like the Bereans did, studying Scripture to see, I don't understand it. As I asked questions of people who are also on their own faith journey, I began to find answers for myself. And here's the difference between what had come before and what I found after, is that suddenly this was no longer somebody else's faith. This was my faith. And it was far stronger because it was no longer built out of assumptions that I'd gleaned from other people, that I just borrowed from people who had done the hard work. It was now my faith. And it was not a set of religious tenets. It was a relationship 
Because really, at the base of this was a, a willingness to trust Jesus enough to lean in and begin walking with him through a dark valley that I was scared that wouldn't be an end to. That my faith would go into this valley and die there. And yet I chose to lean in and follow Jesus through this. Even though I wasn't assured that my faith would make it out. And the reason that I'm grateful for that season of my life, the reason that I would not trade that season of life for just about any other season in my life, I don't want to go back through it, but I'm so grateful that I did go through it because suddenly I owned my faith and it was secure and solid. It could withstand my own questions. It could withstand other people's questions because it was mine. It's the same way that you begin to appreciate your vehicle that you bought with your own money versus a rental. Or for your children, uh, you know, for those of I know that there's a couple here, I think, that are just about to go take their driver's test, which is kind of scary. Warn me. Uh, Bundy's warn me when, when Cameron goes because I will make sure that I dust off my helmet. Um, but, you know, it's the difference between Saving up money to buy your first car versus just having a car handed to you. Which one of those two do you appreciate more? Come on. Which one do you take care of more? Right? And in the same way, our faith, as we work for it, is far more valuable and is far more secure than borrowing somebody else's faith. Which is why when people come to me as a pastor and they have really tough questions that they're asking, I don't give them a hard time. I don't look down on you at all. In fact, I feel gratitude that you are willing to ask those tough questions. I'm excited that you're willing to lean into your faith and take it so seriously that you're willing to do the scary thing of voicing this pearl of great doubt, bringing it into the light and allowing me to get to walk with you through it. I know Jeff would echo the same thing. It's an honor to us to be able to be co, you know, walk with you on that journey. But here is what I will not do. I will not simply give you my answer for it, although there are times I really want to, and other times that I just honestly do because I'm lazy or because I'm so excited to share with you what I found. But when I'm really being wise as a pastor, I won't just give you the answer because then it's my answer. And you'll take it and you go, okay, that works for me. Now I can just kind of like paste over that question and years later it might start peeling back up. I don't want to just be spiritual tape. I really want to allow you to grow through your questions so that your faith becomes your faith, not my faith or Jeff's faith. And so instead, what I'll often do is just go, those are great questions. Let's wrestle with them. Hey, let's look at this passage, this passage, this passage. What do you see? And as they begin to wrestle with it and as they discover it, that's so much more powerful than telling. As one of my mentors used to say, the power is in the discovery, not in the telling. We appreciate a faith that we have worked for far more than we appreciate a faith that we borrow from someone else. So don't be afraid to ask your questions. If you have, grab your Bible and let's turn now back to the story of Thomas. 
It's in John chapter 20. Could you go ahead and turn with me to John 20? Let's go back and revisit this guy who, <laughs> who, who missed the party. He didn't get the invite. He goes out to get the provisions and everybody else is like, dude, you missed the party. Jesus was here, but he's gone. You know, he had other places to be. Apparently he's going to go grab those guys on the road to Emmaus. They don't know it yet. It's going to be really funny when they come back. Thomas comes in and he kind of finds out after the fact that Jesus has been there. And he goes, I want to believe, but I can't believe. And as we're going to pick up this story now, it's going to, we're going to be in verse... 26, a week has transpired between that first conversation in the upper room where Thomas balked and where we're going to start again. Verse 26, a week later, Jesus' disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them this time. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood amongst them and said, peace be with you. Calm down, guys. No, it's really me. Chill. Okay. Not a spirit. I'm, I'm here. Peace be with you. And then he looks at Thomas. Next words out of his lips. Thomas, come here. Put your fingers here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. You said you wanted to see the, the, the wounds from my crucifixion. Come on, you can touch them. Stop doubting, buddy, and you can believe now. What I love about this interaction is that Jesus doesn't show up and start reprimanding Thomas for voicing his doubts. He doesn't reprimand Thomas for asking for the very same thing that the other disciples had gotten. Instead, he shows up and he goes, Thomas, you asked for it. Come and get it. Okay? Come and see the scars. It's really me, buddy. So stop resisting and just, just rejoice with me. Because I've done it. I think that sometimes the reason that we don't get answers to our toughest questions is not because answers do not exist. Not that because answers are not out there, but rather because we are not willing to voice the question. We're too scared, too ashamed, because, you know, we've been following Jesus forever. Everybody expects us to know everything, but I don't. I got questions, and if anybody knew, they would totally judge me. And so we don't voice our questions. What did Jesus say? You have not because you ask not. Perhaps the first step in having our questions answered is simply to voice our questions. Let's keep reading. Notice how Thomas responds here. Then Thomas said, he doesn't even need to go and put his fingers in the nail holes. Just seeing Jesus, just, just getting to hear his voice and see him in the flesh, Thomas responds, my Lord and my God, falls to his knees and begins to worship. And in that moment, just seeing Jesus is enough. And he begins to worship him. And he calls him his Lord, which is what the other disciples had been calling Jesus all along. The one who has the right to direct my steps and tell me how to live my life. Not just the Savior of my soul, but the Lord of my life. But Thomas is also the only disciple that we ever see in the, in the, um, the four Gospels call Jesus his God. He goes so far beyond just being his Lord. You are my God. 
He cannot help but articulate that. And others later on in the New Testament articulate the same thing, but he's the only disciple to do so because it is enough. In that moment of seeing Jesus, all of his doubt evaporates and it's replaced by this solid faith in Jesus. And it's a faith that's not weak. It's a faith that's not vacillating in any way because it is built not upon his circumstances but upon the bedrock of a living, breathing Jesus. And that is enough for him. But before we move out of this section, there's one more thing that Jesus says, and it's really important because this is the part that pertains to us. Let's keep reading in verse 26. I'm sorry, verse 29. Then Jesus looks at Thomas and he told him, because you've seen me, you believe. That's understandable. But blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. He's talking about us. Because unlike Thomas and unlike the disciples, Jesus is no longer walking around in the flesh for all of us to be able to see the nail holes, for all of us to be able to see the scars on his side. One day, one day we look forward to seeing that. But right now, our faith has to rest upon the testimony of those who were eyewitnesses that that their stories were compiled in the scriptures and we need to base our faith off of the testimony of those who have come before us. Maybe it's our parents. Maybe it's our grandparents' faith. Maybe it's our pastor's faith. Maybe it's a friend who's kind of been walking and has been inviting you for months and years. And their faith is kind of what you hold on to. And that's a very different type of faith than what Thomas had, isn't it? In fact, I would suggest that that truly is where faith comes in because faith is not something that we can just kind of like hold on to and say, yes, I know for sure that this is true because it's, I, I can touch it. Let me grab this chair for a second just as an example. Totally didn't prepare. So, whatever. All right. Faith is not something that we already know. Faith is based off of, at least initially, off of hope, off of what we haven't experienced. I love, you don't have to turn here, but I love how the author of Hebrews explains faith. He says this in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Faith is a confidence in what we hope for and an assurance of what we do not see. And this really is faith for those of us who are not eyewitnesses to Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. And every single one of us, if we have faith, it's this type of faith. We may not have seen Jesus in the flesh, but yet we choose to follow him anyway. We're not, we, have, we, we cannot say beyond the shadow of a doubt that our faith will survive as we walk through our questions, and yet we choose to ask our questions anyway. It would be tantamount to me saying, I have faith that this chair which looks very sturdy to me, and I know chairs that are often built very sturdily, so I think that this chair will hold me up. Now, I could claim that as faith. I have faith it'll hold me up. But how do you know if that faith is genuine? I have to sit in it. But what if I said, oh, no, I don't need to sit in it. You all know it'll hold me up, so I'm good. You would have a right to begin to question whether I genuinely had faith in this chair. 
faith becomes true and real when we begin to act on it. Other than that, you're just paying lip service. But when I come over and I put my weight, you're going to, okay, it's not, I'm not, okay. Put my, my weight on this chair. Okay, we're good. Yeah? Let's take it. This is comfortable. Once you put your weight down, once you take that initial leap and you step into the unknown, faith does not stay blind. Faith does not stay untested. Because now I no longer need to take somebody else's word for it that this will hold me up. Now I have tasted and seen that it can. And my faith becomes augmented by my experience. And in the same way, when it comes to our relationship with God... When you first step out in faith, in a lot of ways, it's kind of like Indiana Jones in, the, in the, the Last Crusade, right? Where Remember that part where he can't really see, but he knows it's like the leap of faith, so he does this. And I'm not going to do it. Don't worry. Right? Hopefully I'm not going to do it. That would be awkward. David, are you going to catch me if I fall? Thank you. And then he steps forward. Sometimes it feels like that. But once we step, once we actually place our weight into Jesus' hands and allow Him to guide us through our life, we will begin to taste and see that He is good, that He is trustworthy, that He can handle our questions, that our faith can stand up to the scrutiny of our questions, and that He's still alive and He is still changing lives. I had that crisis of faith almost 20 years ago now. And between then and now, I have seen God show up powerfully time and time again as I followed him. My wife and I have followed him through some really difficult seasons. One of the lies that that you may have heard about Christianity is that if you give your heart to Jesus, he'll protect you from everything that could go wrong. That he'll just make your life perfect and the sun will shine 24 hours a day and you can eat cotton candy and ice cream and you'll never gain an ounce. I haven't heard that, but I would love somebody to preach that. wouldn't make it true. We get this idea, this assumption, that if I follow Jesus, he'll just make my life placid. I can tell you that that's not necessarily true. Because we have walked with Jesus, we've had him shepherd us, through some really dark valleys in our life, through two miscarriages, through the premature birth of our second son, Grayson, where he was on a a respirator for over a month and he spent two months in the hospital. And there were moments where we wondered if we would ever bring him home. And we saw God show up powerfully in that season. We saw him use his body, many of you in this room, who came around us and loved on us. And when we walk through the season, now you see Grace and you're like, dude, that kid is, is a whirling dervish and he's wonderful and he's exhausting. And you would never guess that he was a preemie, but we have seen how God pr- protected and provided and cared for our family through those seasons. And our faith, far from being shaken, was strengthened through it so that we came out of that with a stronger faith than when we went into that valley. We've seen God provide and sometimes miraculously for our family. Checks that just showed up in the mail. Um, a, a bank account that seemed to extend far longer than it should have. 
work right when we needed it. I mean, my wife is driving around a vehicle right now that we did not buy, that we never could have afforded, that was given to us two days before I had agreed with her that we would start looking for a car that we hadn't saved for. I know, Dave Ramsey, don't be mad at me. And yet God provided it in a way that he gets the glory. And I'm not saying that if you follow Jesus, he'll all give you a car. He's not Oprah. He's way better. I'm just saying that I have tasted and seen that he provides in his way, in his timing. I've seen the way that he has protected and guided our steps, opening doors and closing doors according to his wisdom. Sometimes he's closed doors that I thought that we were supposed to walk through. I was sure we were supposed to go this way. And the door closes definitively and we're like, okay. And then other times he opens doors that I never would have anticipated might be open. And we go, is that where you want us to go? Okay, we'll go that way. And we follow him. And it might seem like the path he leads us along is circuitous. But when I look back at the path he's led us down, I can see the wisdom of his leadership and guidance. And I can see the ways he has protected us from what we thought would be good and would have actually been very, very damaging to our family. I can see the ways that he has protected us from certain good things so they could prepare us for even better things. I'm grateful for that. And it's not just my family that I've tasted and seen that God is good and that Jesus is real. I've seen it in so many other families. One of the beautiful things about, that my wife and I are invited into is we get to, be, to do life with and be invited into your stories, oftentimes as they are in process, during the, the messiness where we've got questions but we don't yet have answers. I have seen how God has answered prayers for healing powerfully to the point where the physicians cannot even explain it, but they can't deny it. I've seen the way that he has brought people back from the brink of the grave. Some of you are here today, and I'm grateful. See you, Bill. I'm grateful that you're here. And it is through prayer, it is it is by the grace of God. I've seen the way that he has also shepherded families through the loss of loved ones, sometimes very tragic, far too young, very painful. And we go, where were you, God? Why did you allow it to happen? But I've seen the way that walking with God through those seasons, that Jesus shepherds families through the most painful season they could have ever imagined. Just over this last week, we have celebrated the lives of two spiritual giants who have been a part of our church for a long, long time. Lloyd Strait and Gene Grivey. And both of those memorial services, while there were tears, were celebrations of life. And the reason we could celebrate their life and the reason we could laugh and smile in, in spite of and even with our tears is because of what happened on a cross 2,000 years ago. Jesus took upon himself the penalty of our sins. He died in our place. And in so doing, he defanged death so that even death doesn't get the last word. And neither does the brokenness of our life, the brokenness of our bodies, and the brokenness of our country and our world. 
Broken marriages, I've seen God resurrect broken marriages. I have seen him overcome infidelity. We've got some marriages in here that have walked through that particular dark valley. And they are stronger today than they were before. God bless you. I have seen as God has brought people out of addiction, broken the chains that they never thought there would be hope from. And yet he has done it. And it doesn't always happen overnight. But if we fixed our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, he can help guide our steps through even the darkest valleys. I've seen the way that he has softened hearts, that he's literally removed a heart of stone. Somebody that was filled with hatred and anger and wanted nothing to do with someone else. And he has radically replaced that heart with a heart of flesh. And he has restored relationship. And I know there are relationships in here this morning that you have been praying and crying for restoration in. And there is hope even in that. I've seen the way that Jesus transforms lives. And so for me, it is no longer an unfounded hope. It's a hope that is built upon experience and experience and experience. And today, my faith is no longer the faith of my parents. It's no longer the faith of my pastors. Now it's mine. And I get to walk with my boys as they discover their faith and as they ask their questions. And they're good questions. They're making kids a lot smarter these days than when I was a kid. (laughs) And I get to watch as your faith continues to grow. And so this morning, there's probably two things, two responses um, for us to take from this. Some of us in this room have been following Jesus for a long, long time. We have declared our faith in Him. And yet, deep down underneath it, you still have questions. Maybe you're embarrassed to ask them because you shouldn't have them anymore. They should have been answered a long time ago. Or maybe you have been under the assumption that you can't have faith and still have questions, so you just ignore the questions. And this morning, the invitation is, it's okay to ask your questions. It's okay to take a page out of Thomas's book and speak your mind. God is a big enough God to handle it. And our faith is robust enough to be able to withstand our greatest scrutiny. And I commit to you that our church is here to be a support for you along this process. Because we are all in process. So I don't want you to just share your questions through prayer with God. I would love it if you would entrust to us those pearls of doubt that you've been carrying around. Because we want to lean into them. And in fact, over the next five weeks, we as a church are going to embark on a a series that we're calling Beyond Doubt. Where we're going to grapple with some of our deepest questions. We're going to see if they hold water. If there are answers to those questions. But I recognize that the questions we have planned to ask and discuss may not necessarily be the ones you're wrestling with. And I'd love to know them. So if you would, you have those connection cards in your seat back in front of you. One of the ways you can respond, because those are for prayer requests. Those are for a praise report. We want to hear stories. We want to be able to celebrate how God has been faithful in those things. But we also want to make those available to you. If you have questions that you want to voice, that you've been carrying around, at the very least, we will commit to praying that God provides an answer. 
But we'd also love the opportunity perhaps to lean in and process through some of those with you. Maybe in front of the church, maybe just one-on-one, maybe in small groups. But we want to create space for us to ask our questions. I understand, however, that some of you may not have a fully formulated question in mind that you could write down today. Or maybe other questions will come up later in the week or in the next month or in the next years. So we have a website. LighthouseCommunity.com. You can go on there and there's a little tab that says connect. Hit that and you can write any question. You can write any comment. You can write any prayer request there and it'll get directly to the pastors. And so I would just ask that you invite us into this process of you asking your questions. Because at the end of the day, if we trust our Father God enough to entrust our lives to Him, why wouldn't we entrust our questions to Him as well, right? Right? Second response. There are some of us here this morning that are kind of surprised that you're here this morning, right? You, 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 you don't even know how you got here this morning. They promised you pancakes and bacon, so you're in. Um, and there may be some of you in here who have been waiting to say yes to Jesus until all of your questions have been satisfactorily answered. And you got a lot of them. You've been asking and you've been waiting for answers. And so you say, you know what? Maybe, maybe the chair will hold me up. Maybe Christ is real. Maybe this whole thing isn't as much of a sham and a crutch as I have given people, the, I've had the impression that it is. But until all of my questions are answered, I'm not going to sit down. Until I know beyond the shadow of a doubt that that chair will hold me up, that that Jesus can really hold my life together, I will continue to be the captain of my own ship. May I remind you, as somebody who has been following Jesus for a whole long time and who still has questions of my own, even today, you will never run out of questions to ask this side of the grave. And so if you are waiting until they're all answered, it's going to be too late. And I have found that the best way to find out if he really is real is to do what the Bereans did, right? Embrace it. And continue to ask your questions at the same time. Those two things are not mutually exclusive. Lean in. And embrace Jesus. And there's nothing magical about how we do that. You don't have to earn it. Otherwise, His grace would not be a gift. Some of you are here this morning going, I just need to clean myself up and then I'll be ready. It's like, no, no, no. That's backwards. That's like... That's like hiring a, a cleaning person to come to your home and then straightening up before she gets there because you're embarrassed for her to see, right? That makes no sense at all. It's like throw the candy wrappers from breakfast over the back of the couch because this don't be taken care of. Maybe that's just me. 2,000 years ago, Jesus hung on a cross. Was he put there by men? Yes by men who were afraid that he was going to challenge the status quo, but he also went there willingly. He willingly walked to the cross. He didn't try to argue his way out of it. When the Father said, this is my will, he said, okay. And he submitted to the cross and he bled out in our place so that we could live with God, so that we prodigals could come home. And my guess is there are some prodigals in here this morning who... You don't feel worthy to come home, which is good because none of us are worthy to come home. 
And that's the beauty of our Father. He loves us even more than He hates our sin. And so He says, come home, because I've already dealt with your sin. It's done. So just come home and let me begin that process of cleaning you up. Let me begin to do the work in you that you've been trying so hard to do for yourself. Please don't fight it. Please don't fight my love. Please don't reject my gift because we don't, we couldn't earn this gift, but we can choose whether or not to accept it. How? Well, how do you accept a gift? (laughs) Okay, thanks. Right? That's it. That's all you have to do. And then becomes the fun journey of following him. So there's nothing magical about these words, but just so that there is no question that you know Jesus' invitation was never pray a prayer, but follow me. And yet a, a, a journey of a lifetime begins with the first step of acceptance. And that first step goes something like, Jesus, I am going to choose to lean in and allow you to come into my life. I, I don't know what this all means. I still got a ton of questions, as you know. But I'm going to choose to sit down and rest in you and see where you want to go. I choose to allow you to be my Savior, but I also want you to be the Lord of my life and show me how you want me to live. Have your way with me. I should mention that there is no magical formula, and every time I pray that prayer, it is always different. You can just use your words. But I can tell you this. Your Father God loves you more than you could ever possibly fathom. And today is a celebration of that. If you prayed that prayer, I'm not going to put you on the spot right now, but I do want to know that you did it so we can follow up with you. Would you please fill out the connection card and let us know so that Pastor Jeff or I can follow up with you this week because we want to celebrate with you. We want to come alongside of you. We want to do life with you. With that, let me pray. And then we're going to go into a time of celebration as we celebrate the greatest gift of love that has ever been done in human history on the day where, we, where God proved definitively that that didn't get the last word. He did. And that means that our death and our sin doesn't get the last word. He does. So, Father God, I thank you so much for how you love us. I thank you so much that we get to do life not only with you, but with one another as brothers and sisters who are not birth-related. We are blood-related. I thank you for the blood of Jesus that you allowed to be poured out on the cross for us. And we thank you that the cross didn't get the last word so that we can celebrate that there is hope after the grave. So now we just want to worship you and celebrate you. Jesus, in your holy name, amen.